We've heard from many different people in the previous episodes of this podcast. From Lionel Crabbe's unreliable mate, Sidney Knowles. From Portsmouth-based reporter, Peter Marshall. And we've heard from experts like Dr Richard Shepherd, who guided us through the autopsy on Crabbe's corpse. And Crabbe expert, Anne Bevan, who knows more than anyone about the whole mystery. But there's one person who so far remains silent. And that's Lionel Crabbe himself. We know he gave some radio interviews in the 1940s, but do those programmes still exist? And how would we even find them? Our junior producer, Martha Miller, is on the case, starting with the BBC, but it's a long shot. So, when I contacted BBC Archives, they originally said that there are two remaining fragments of a uh, BBC home service recording from 1949 and this programme... Martha has managed to find a radio listings magazine from that year, which gives more information about the programme. It was called The Frogman, and it was about an underwater expedition led by Crab. And that is mentioned in the programme and... And Martha's just been sent the only surviving clip from the programme. It's on her laptop. And you think that could be Lionel Crab? I think it could be, based on what the Radio Times programme references. And in this clip, there's a man who's talking about this work, which makes me think, this is the person, this is Crab. This is brilliant digging. OK, we've got to hear, we've got to hear this voice now. You need to picture the scene. Crab is in a BBC recording studio in London. A small room, he's sitting at a wooden table, He's almost certainly wearing a tie, because this is the BBC. He moves closer to a chunky old microphone, clears his throat, begins to talk. <coughs> and as he does so, this is all going to sound quite technical, but the microphone is capturing the vibrations in his voice, transferring them to a precision blade that's etching the finest of grooves into a rotating disc of what looks like shiny black plastic. Those etched grooves, they're like magic. They're capturing the rise and fall in Lionel Crabbe's voice. The tremors, the vibrations, they're capturing him. And as long as that master disc survives, Crabbe's voice will always be with us, forever. So here he is. Much to my surprise and horror, I sighted a nasty cylindrical object about two and a half feet long clamped the bilge keel alongside the engine room. He's talking about prizing a mine off the bottom of a ship with the help of a fellow diver. It was December and cold. The mine had three clamps. Two came adrift easily, the third jammed. It took leading seaman Bell, the BEM, and myself, diving alternately, three quarters of an hour to free the obstruction. It's unsettling to hear his voice and so different from what Sarah and I were expecting. No trace of the humble background, the poverty, the lack of formal education. Crabs adopted, quite deliberately, the formal tones of the BBC. And as I listen, I can't help smiling at the fact that in the only clip of Crab that we have, which lasts just 47 seconds, he talks twice about alcohol. First here... I looked, backed away and surfaced. 
to warm the ship, to get a line, and thanks to the mate, a drink of rum. And then here. It also took the remainder of the mate's bottle. And that's it. Less than a minute. But though it's short, it sends a shiver down my spine, listening to him talk. After all this time, after all our research, it's him. Much to my surprise and horror. I'd always hoped to rebuild Lionel Crab, and now here he is, sitting in the room with me. I looked back to where. But it's him at the height of his fame. It's 1949, and much would change for Crab over the next few years. Because by 1956, as we now know, he's penniless, adrift, and drinking heavily. Crab's fall from grace was known to a wide number of people. They knew he was vulnerable. But one thing is sure, they also knew he was a man desperate to be part of the action once again, to be the hero again. So who picked him for such a risky mission? And were they seeking to exploit him? I'm Giles Milton, and from Something Else and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Cover Up Season 1, Ministry of Secrets. Episode 7, Dodgy Dicky Strikes Again. The world of espionage is as murky as the waters of Portsmouth Harbour, and the Secret Service, that's MI6, is a completely closed world, a world of gentlemen insiders, Eton, Oxford and all that. But while they looked like gentlemen, those intelligence agents, some were gentlemen who played dirty. And there's one name within MI6 that keeps cropping up, online, in newspaper articles, in books, and always in relation to the final dive of Lionel Crabbe. That man, he was one of the most senior agents working for MI6. He organised clandestine missions from MI6 headquarters in central London, just a stone's throw from Whitehall. And he'd been posted all over the world, Turkey, Switzerland, Austria, at critical times during and after World War II, he saw himself as a master of espionage, and he was rumoured to be the prime suspect in planning Crab's final dive. But no one has ever been able to confirm this for sure. And his name? Nicholas Elliott. So who was he? My father had a very conventional English um, upper-class upbringing. This is Mark Elliott talking about his father in a BBC documentary filmed nearly 10 years ago. He was happiest in an all-male environment all throughout his life. Um, he loved Eton, he loved White's Club, an all-male club. So in a sense, he was an interesting mixture of a very conventional person. Eton, Cambridge, and... He had a streak in him that was unconventional and somewhat risky. 
He was something of a risk taker. Mark Elliott's now in his late 70s and living in America. I tried to contact him to find out if his father was directly involved in the crab mission, but he didn't reply to my email. And as for others who knew Nicholas Elliott and the way he worked, well, there are very few people still alive. There was the late John le Carré, the ex-spy and author of countless spy thrillers set in the intelligence world. But he died a few years ago. He did, however, write a short account of his impressions of Elliot, a man he knew well. I never once saw him in anything but an immaculately cut dark three-piece suit. He had perfect Etonian manners and delighted in human relationships. He was thin as a wand and seemed always to hover slightly above the ground at a jaunty angle, a quiet smile on his face and one elbow cocked for the martini glass or cigarette. Nicholas Elliott of MI6 was the most charming, witty, elegant, courteous, compulsively entertaining spy I ever met. In retrospect, he also remains the most enigmatic. Enigmatic, charming, but also a risk-taker. So was Nicholas Elliott directly involved in the Crab mission? The Crab affair, as we know, caused a complete rumpus. I mean, it led to the... Richard Norton uh, Taylor is in his late 70s. He's an investigative reporter specialising in the world of intelligence. We've been looking for someone who knew Elliott personally. And finally, we've tracked him down. Well, I, I got to know of him because I was writing at the time. Richard was intrigued by Nicholas Elliott. He had an aura about him because he, was, he went to Eton, as we know, and he was quite a cavalier person. He was not kind of maverick, but he was one of the kind of swashbucklers, really. Supremely confident, didn't obey the rules anywhere. You can imagine the kind of person who MI6 reveled in employing then. And one day, Richard tells me, Elliot invited him to lunch at, you guessed it, one of those private gentlemen's clubs in central London, the Travellers Club. Of course, Travellers Club in Palmer, which is uh, the, the club for spies, of course. A club for spies, MI6, where missions are planned, where secrets are traded. So Richard and Nicholas Elliott are sitting together in the club dining room, a fine bottle of claret on the table, white tablecloth, silver cutlery. And Elliott's a peculiar mix of supreme confidence and nervous energy. He was kind of a rather emaciated figure, chain-smoking figure, clearly desperate to smoke in between every mouthful, let alone every course. So I ask Richard, how much was Nicholas Elliott involved in Lionel Crabbe's mission? He knew all about it, and, and certainly I would say Elliott was one of them who, who was giving lots of nods and winks. And, well, as I said, you know, working like a club, no accountability, which obviously he enjoyed very much and had done as a privileged member of the, well, sort of upper middle classes, I suppose, and, and Eaton and all that. But, uh, you know, he was a bright guy and he was supremely confident and uh, MI6 then was certainly not uh, held to account for much. But it sounds so like think... he was rather good on putting, uh, on, on deflecting anything from him though. Yes, I think that's right. 
And there's been rumours, um, never proved, of, you know, this was actually a rogue operation. It hadn't been officially sanctioned. It was a rogue operation. They'd given a promise. I mean, or MI6 certainly a promise, and they were, or were told not to do anything naughty. And there's Nicholas Elliott and his gang of doing what so they wanted, and that, that was hugely embarrassing. So it was indeed a rogue operation, because, as Richard put it, Nicholas Elliott and his gang were doing what the fuck they wanted. And so you get all these people, they weren't, they weren't cowboys so much, they're just very British, presumptuous, exceptionalists, we can uh, entitlement, all that stuff, which is, of course, still, uh, still remnants of this in, in, in part of the British establishment now. So I ask him, what did Elliot tell him about the operation going wrong, about Crabbe's death? He had no sort of regrets, really. He, he had no regrets. It's just rather bad luck that Crabbe was uh, found dead without a head. But what did Nicholas Elliott and his MI6 insiders want from this mission? What was it all about? According to Peter Marshall, our Portsmouth-based reporter, it was all to do with Soviet technology. You see, Khrushchev's vessel, the Orjonikidze, was said to be fitted with these extraordinary new and powerful state-of-the-art engines with a completely revolutionary design. Top Soviet scientists had worked for years on this groundbreaking new system, and now that technology was birthed in Portsmouth Harbour. And obviously, Nicholas Elliott wanted to know more. They were specifically trying to discover the propulsion means which made the Orjonikidze faster than any other uh, ship of its class. And it was to do with the uh, way that the, um, the screws the engines drove were apparently housed in tunnels under the ship. And this was able to give more greater thrust to the speed of the ship. This extra speed, it meant that Soviet vessels were now faster than British ones. This was the height of the Cold War and there were tensions everywhere. And in any military confrontation, it put the Soviets at a massive advantage. So why did Nicholas Elliott choose Lionel Crabbe for the Portsmouth Harbour mission? Why him specifically? Remember, this was a rogue mission and no one must know about it. And that meant Nicholas Elliott couldn't use serving Royal Navy divers. He needed someone deniable, someone retired, someone like Lionel Crabbe. Here's Crabbe expert Anne Bevan, who says that when he left the Navy, he was kept on a list of useful people. Um, I call them Teflon people, so that if anything had gone wrong, nothing stuck because he was no longer associated with the Navy. And he probably also would have been quite cheap to hire because they knew he was always in financial difficulties. And he would have jumped at the chance of doing anything for money and especially getting down here, meeting all his mates again and getting back into the water. It's highly likely Nicholas Elliott knew about this when he planned the dive, knew that Crabbe would eagerly volunteer. But that still leaves Bernard Smith, the man who accompanied Crabbe from London to Portsmouth, who checked in with Crabbe at the Sallyport Hotel. He remains one of the great mysteries in the Crabbe mission. 
He certainly intrigued Peter Marshall, that Portsmouth-based reporter. So I asked Marshall, did he try to track down Bernard Smith? We tried, but we couldn't find anybody who knew anything about him. But he spoke with an American accent and nobody quite knew his background. Nobody interviewed him at all. But Peter Marshall grew increasingly convinced Bernard Smith was some sort of link man between London and Washington. And the fact that the American television and press were very keen on the story, and I was doing work for them or with them, and they sent their people down to Portsmouth to, you know, uh, find out more about it. And they were intrigued by the, the um, story of the mysterious man. And um, so that tended to sort of, in my mind then, confirm the fact that I thought the Americans had an involvement in this story somewhere. But could this really be possible? Could the Americans also have been involved in Lionel Crabbe's mission? Was this a joint MI6 CIA operation? Some years ago, I was introduced to a British intelligence agent, a spy. He's retired now and doesn't mind me naming him, Michael Smith. And I get back in touch with him because of the Lionel Crabbe story, and he agrees to have a chat. So I joined the intelligence corps, and it was signals... Michael's bald, stocky, so, and has an endearing um, twinkle in his eye, like he knows every secret uh, under the sun. Michael spent many years of the Cold War eavesdropping on the Soviets from his base in Germany. It's a sort of cat-and-mouse operation there, where you're chasing these um, people up and down the airwaves. You're building up an intelligence picture. At the time of the Lionel Crab uh, adventure, there's a, a name keeps cropping up, and it's this chap called Bernard Smith. And the rumour is that, in fact, this dive under Khrushchev's vessel was actually a joint MI6 CIA operation. And I just wondered, is, could there be any plausibility to that? Yes. Yes, it's, it's obviously plausible, yeah. Yeah, they, they, they were working together very closely throughout the 50s. Michael says the CIA would have been pushing to get one of their men involved, a man like Bernard Smith. They would have worked together, they would have been discussing it together. And yeah, there could well have been pressure from the Americans who couldn't care less about state visits if the CIA wanted this done then um, MI6 might have said, OK, let's put something together. Michael says the CIA's involvement helps explain why Nicholas Elliott chose someone like Lionel Crabb to do the dive. Because what they put together, it was a top-secret operation, even within the CIA and MI6. In fact, it was so secret that those organising it decided to use people who couldn't be traced, like ex-spies who'd retired and were off the books. It just goes to the point that they were trying to keep it completely secret and not, um, not let anyone know about it because actually, of course, the right person to do it would have been a Royal Navy diver, not Lionel Crown. So we know that Nicholas Elliott most likely planned Lionel Crabbe's dive 
in partnership with the CIA. But how free was Elliot to act on his own initiative? Nowadays, MI6 has to act within the law, but how was it in the 1950s? It was a very, very different time. Very often, schemes behind the scenes were devised and worked on and carried out that the government wouldn't know anything about and didn't, in those days, necessarily have to um, accord with the law. I asked Michael if he's surprised by the Lionel Crabbe mission. The fact that the Prime Minister, Anthony Eden, said he had nothing to do with it. In this period, is that exactly the sort of operation that would be taking place? Yeah, I think, I think it is exactly the sort of operation that would be taking place, but um, I suspect it was ordered by MI6 chiefs. I don't see any political person ordering it because I don't believe for a minute that um, anyone in government would authorise that operation. Not at that time, not during a state visit. And what of Nicholas Elliott's role, the enigmatic charmer within MI6, the man who loved to take risks? Was this one risk too far? An operation so badly planned from beginning to end that it was always likely to go wrong, always likely to be a cock-up. Elliot was an idiot. You've got already an extraordinarily incompetent operation. But equally, it was stupid to do it you know, when Khrushchev was on a state visit. And it's very embarrassing for the government um, if things go wrong, which of course famously they did. But this still leaves one outstanding question. If it wasn't Anthony Eden, who gave Nicholas Elliott his orders? Who was his boss? This is Chilling Tales for Dark Nights. Good evening, listener. I'm Steve Taylor, your host to a horror anthology podcast where we ask you to depart from your safe perception of reality to descend with us into the frightening depths and dark corners of twisted imaginations. With carefully curated original tales of terror each week, our deepest rooted fears are brought to the forefront by a diverse cast of voice talent and masterfully eerie sound design that bring these stories to life. We'll give you tales of unnerving encounters with the occult, harrowing hauntings, and sinister seances that show just how darkness knows no bounds. Make sure to check out Chilling Tales for Dark Nights on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Is Meghan Markle like Princess Diana? Or is she just a social climber? I was silent. Were you silent or were you silenced? Is she a breath of fresh air or a master manipulator? That's what we're going to find out on my podcast, Infamous. Apparently ambition is a terrible, terrible thing. We'll look at what happened when two dysfunctional families came together. It's a family that I suppose she's never had. And how Meghan and Harry going Hollywood all went down. Only on the podcast, Infamous. I want to leave the world of the 1950s for a moment, jump forwards to the here and now, take you to the world of Whitehall today, 
the world of those government ministries in the heart of London. Because it's important to peek inside today's Whitehall establishment, see who exactly is blocking the Lionel Crabbe file from being made public. Remember, they've had almost 70 years to release that file, but they're intending to block access to it until 2057. So Sarah and I have come to the home of Sonia Purnell, political biographer and former Whitehall correspondent. She's enormous fun with a broad smile and a mass of blonde hair. I've looked and watched Whitehall for a very long time. I used to cover it for two newspapers, The Telegraph and The Daily Mail. My father worked in Whitehall. And she's steeped in this forbidden world, probably knows it better than anyone else. She's promised to give us an insider's view. Tell us who inhabits it, how they keep things secret. The Whitehall establishment today, she says, it's almost impossible to penetrate. And it's remarkably similar to how it was in the 1950s. That world is an extremely closed one. It's very incestuous. Most of them have been to the same schools, the same universities. Often they've known each other since childhood. They may well have done exactly the same degree. They may have had the same tutors even. David Cameron, the former prime minister, the former foreign secretary, William... Sonia reels off names of the most powerful people in recent times. Prime ministers, heads of departments, top political journalists. People don't hold each other to account. If you've propped up the student bar for three years with someone else, it's difficult to take them seriously, perhaps. Or if you do take them seriously, it's difficult to ask them questions and really hold them to account. So this is why it matters. If something goes wrong, if there's a crisis, if uh, a minister has to cover something up, that's presumably going to be quite easy because the, the, the paperwork will never leave the building. It will simply disappear. So there's always a tension between that secrecy and this great sort of civil service tradition of taking minutes of everything. But yeah, um, I think things do disappear quite um, frequently when convenient. Britain has an exceptional culture of secrecy, of government secrecy. It has always done. We've always had a pretty severe Official Secrets Act uh, that makes so many things secret that actually don't need to be. It's hard to believe she's describing Britain today, a country still controlled by a tiny Whitehall elite, many of whom are old friends and constantly looking out for one another, ensuring damaging paperwork will never see the light of day. I asked Sonia about a disturbing rumour that Sarah and I have heard, a rumour that deep inside Whitehall, at the very inner circle of power, there's a small group of insiders whose sole task is to stop secrets from ever escaping from Whitehall. These people, I asked Sonia, do they actually exist? She says she's also heard these rumours, heard that there's some sort of ministry of secrets at the heart of Whitehall, but she's never been able to discover more. If you find something out about them, tell me, because I have long wondered, who are these mysterious figures? Who gets to choose them? What's their brief? What are they doing all day? Where are they sitting even? I don't even know that.
And it makes me think, perhaps there really is a secret inner circle blocking access to all the information that everyone has a right to know. The mistakes, the cock-ups, the illegal goings-on. And if these people exist, will Sarah and I be able to find them? If you're looking for a smoking gun, I can absolutely guarantee you, you will not find it. In October 2001, a series of letters filled with a deadly powder called anthrax were dropped into the U.S. mail system. What started as an unprecedented case turned into an unsettling mystery. Who sent these deadly letters and why? From Campside Media and Sony Music Entertainment, I'm Josh Dean, and this is Cover Up Season 4, The Anthrax Threat, available now. What if you could become stronger, more resilient, cure disease, and all you have to do is get naked in the cold and breathe? You get into ice water, and instead of, like, freaking out, you relax. It's called the Wim Hof Method, and Gwyneth Paltrow and Justin Bieber love it. I do the ice plunge because it's good for your body. But there's also a dark side. How many people have died doing the Wim Hof Method? We can override even death! Listen on the podcast Infamous. That's Infamous, playing now. In episode five, we were introduced to Lord Mountbatten, head of the Royal Navy, a member of the royal family, and a man with an aquiline nose and piercing gaze. We heard how close he was to the royals, how the Queen loved him and called him Dicky, And we also heard how this pillar of the establishment had a very private side. So I ask Mountbatten's biographer, Andrew Lowney, the one with the light curly hair and kindly smile, if he knows anything more about Mountbatten's hidden double life. And he says yes, he does. He had a long uh, interest in clandestine warfare. He'd always worked very closely with SIS. SIS, the Secret Intelligence Service, better known as MI6. Lowney says Mountbatten was involved in special operations during the war, secret raids, dirty tricks, and these operations, they always had one thing in common. They were deniable. So he, he was a guy prepared to think outside the box, and he played to win. He didn't always play fair. He had a, a, a great regard for the secret world. He, he certainly knew a lot of spooks. He loved that world, uh, and um, he enjoyed, I suppose, operating outside conventional systems. In the previous episode, I asked Lowney about whether Mountbatten could have known Lionel Crabbe. Because although he's found no mention of Crabbe in Mountbatten's private diaries, perhaps they worked together at some point. It's very likely he would have come across Crabbe. He was also, of course, a very keen diver, and so would have been interested in any of these diving operations. And Mountbatten, like Crabbe, was bisexual, and both loved living dangerously. I found a man who'd been a chauffeur in 1948, who was instructed by senior naval officers to find out where the male brothel in Malta was, because Mountbatten would want to go there. This was dangerous territory for Mountbatten, illegal territory. And he knew those risks all too well. 
but he loved the thrill of taking risks. So I show Lowney the Daily Mirror's front-page splash about Mountbatten, the suggestion he was involved in Lionel Crabbe's dive. You know Mountbatten well. I mean, you've studied him for so long. He could have authorised a rogue operation like this. Absolutely. I mean, he loved dirty tricks and, and secret operations. Someone said that if you swallowed a nail, he was so crooked it would come out a corkscrew. So I think it's very, very likely that he would have had some involvement. He was a sort of boy's own adventurer, and this just fits that more perfectly. Mm. He had the authority to give the instructions. He had the character to do so. And Matt Batten is, must have been at the centre of it as the head of the Navy. He had a long history and association with intelligence, particularly naval intelligence. So uh, it's inconceivable that in the position he had and given his background that he wouldn't have known about this. Uh, and so his, his claims not to know anything really don't stand up to scrutiny. But if he was involved in the crab dive, he'd surely have met with crab. There are talks, certainly, of Mountbatten meeting uh, Crab at Cowdery Park, which is next door to the Broadlands Estate. The Broadlands Estate, Mountbatten's vast country retreat. It's not far from Portsmouth. And I think any meeting would have been done somewhere like Broadlands, away from scrutiny. You certainly wouldn't have met in a, in a club or a public place. And everything would have been extremely secret, because secrecy was central to Mountbatten's makeup. So my instinct is that there would have been a need to know for this operation. It would have been a very tight group of planners. Mountbatten may have been at the top of this operation, but he would have clearly um, delegated the roles to senior planners. People like MI6 agent Nicholas Elliott. And the planning would have been word of mouth, which explains the absence of any paper trail. There would be no correspondence, there would be no contact once the initial decision was made. Although Lowney's never found anything linking Mountbatten to Crabbe, he did make a disturbing discovery when looking through Mountbatten's papers. All the files about diving operations in Portsmouth had been destroyed. And uh, I've looked very, very closely also in adjacent files, where sometimes things get copied in, and it's been completely dry cleaned. Everything is gone. What he's saying, it's shocking. Someone has gone through those files and removed everything that could implicate Mountbatten, the Queen's beloved dicky, in the Lionel Crabbe affair. So let's just take stock of all this. Andrew Lowney's convinced Lord Mountbatten knew of Lionel Crabbe's mission and almost certainly ordered it to go ahead, approached Nicholas Elliott in MI6, told him to set it up. Is this why Whitehall's placed a hundred-year ban on the crab file being released? Is it because this rogue mission was ordered by Lord Mountbatten, a man at the very heart of the royal family? Next time in the final episode of Ministry of Secrets. There are things that I'm not allowed to tell you because I can't let you broadcast it. So you have to turn that off. Want the full story? Unlock all episodes of Cover Up Ministry of Secrets ad-free right now by subscribing to The Binge. All episodes, all at once. Plus, you'll unlock brand new stories dropping every month. That's all episodes, all at once, all ad-free. Just click subscribe on the top of the Cover Up Ministry of Secrets show page on Apple Podcasts 
or visit getthebinge.com to get access wherever you listen. Find out more about The Binge and other podcasts from Sony Music Entertainment at sonymusic.com forward slash podcasts. Cover Up Season 1, Ministry of Secrets, is a something else and Sony Music Entertainment production. It's hosted and written by me, Giles Milton. The producer is Sarah Peters. The junior producer is Martha Miller. The production coordinator is E.K. Egbitola. Peggy Sutton is the story consultant. Jeremy Wormsley composed the original music with mixing and sound design from Peregrine Andrews. Isis Thompson is the editor and executive producer. With thanks to actor Peter Temple and Tuning Fork Productions.